Ace is a fucking savage. Like this dude works super, super hard. And the coolest thing about Ace is that he came from a really, really fucking shitty upbringing. And he, this dude has made lemonade from lemons. Let me tell you that. This podcast is going to be really, really helpful for anybody who's stuck in a rut. Anyone who's struggling, anxious, depressed, life doesn't look good. And you just want to figure out how the fuck can I get out of this situation? Listen to this. It's a no brainer. And the reason is because Ace has come for some really, really terrible positions in his life to a point where he's now absolutely crushing and every single day keeps getting better for him. I hope you guys enjoy this. And we're live. Thanks for coming on, bro. 100%, brother. So My pleasure. As we were talking about before, the reason why I wanted to get you on is because you've got a pretty unusual path to success and you've gone through and you've battled a whole heap of demons and a whole heap of shit. And I would love to get your perspective on how you can pull yourself out of a crappy situation and how you did it. So, like, can you take us back to the start? Like, what was life like for you growing up? So, when I was growing up, I didn't think it was all that different from everybody else. I was born addicted to cocaine because my mom was kind of using it while she was, uh, while I was in utero. And then my dad, like, when I was, on the way, he had just gotten out of rehab for like shooting cocaine. So that kind of led to them continuing to use some of those bad habits like over and over again in kind of like this perpetual cycle. And then um, my dad was involved in the Hells Angels. So like the first 10 years of my life was just (laughs) like every flavor of abuse. I was hanging out in clubhouses. A lot of the people I was going to the birthday parties for, they were getting their doors kicked in, shot at. We were running drills in the middle of the night in case bullets were flying through our house. It was a mess. So you were running drills to prepare for that? Yeah. We would wake up at around three in the morning and then my dad would have us pretty much crawl on our face, like down our staircases and into this little safe house that was just like nothing but concrete in our basement. So very wired into kind of like this survival state, if you will. And then things kind of came to a head when I was about 10. My dad had broken his leg in a motorcycle accident. And then like after he had recovered, he got a felony. Like it was pretty much criminal mischief, but he essentially assaulted somebody. My mom had gotten into meth pretty heavy. So I think it was like three days after Christmas, 2010, like she threatened to kill me and my brother with a knife. So like at that point, me and my brother had basically gone into care with my uncle. And that was kind of how I knew things were a bit screwed up. Um, what was that then, like to, to have? Because that's a super unusual thing to happen, right? It's like mm-hmm. your your mum tries to you threaten to kill you and your brother with 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 a, with a knife. What we I know you said that you you thought it was normal growing up, but like, what sort of effect did that have on you when you had something as unusual as that happen? In the moment, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me. But in hindsight, it's one of the best things that's ever happened. I think it was Jean Piaget, like a developmental psychologist who said, like, a man isn't a man until his parents are dead. And then it was Carl Jung who said, um, yes, but that death can take place symbolically. And like what I mean by death isn't necessarily like they're dead and gone, but you basically come to the epiphany that your parents have no idea how to live, live your life better than you do. So like there was a bit of a click moment at that time where it was essentially like, okay, if I'm to make it out of this kind of hell, 
or be a productive member of society in really any fashion. It's up to me, including like helping teach my brother some of the same principles. So it was terrible from like a trauma perspective and kind of working through that over the following years. But from the perspective of what that did to my character, the way I choose to interpret it, it, it interpret it is essentially like if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have taken ownership and actually like became the person that I am today. If that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Okay. And so then you moved in with your, with your uncle. Is that right? Yeah. So my dad's um, little stint in jail didn't last all that long. It was about six months or so. And then me, my brother and my, and myself, we basically rebuilt an old rental property in Nebraska. That was one of our, one of our grandmother's plots of land. So we spent the summer, it was kind of like the first job we ever had uh, in, a, in a weird sense. My brother was eight at the time. I was about, I had just turned 10. So you were eight we, and 10, you were building a house. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Putting in new floors, rehanging old drywall, like running the sledgehammer across the concrete floor to like redo it. And then we rebuilt that so we'd have a place to live. And then we started going to school as my dad is kind of like a single father in this little community with about 1,700 people and no stoplight. And we stayed there for about two years or so. And then my dad got married again to uh, a lady in a bigger, bit of a bigger place. It's called Gehring. There were about three to 5,000 people there. There was a stoplight. That was a plus. And they got married. And then she was a good person, but she was very manipulative. She was trying to turn me and my brother into... Are the potential selves that we could have been that were in the most benefit to her, like constantly, I guess, berating us around how we were managing ourselves throughout the house, what we were doing with our time, basically emotional abuse once again. Mm. What, <laughs> and, what effect um, did that have on you? It kind of cemented the idea that just because somebody is older than you doesn't really mean that they have any better idea of what you should do about this whole life thing. That's such a cool realization. Because it's, it's essentially like her insecurity and her fear of what our patterns of action were going to be was around like insecurities on her part. It had really nothing to do with us. There were two basically aliens in her house and she didn't know how to handle that because it was her second marriage and all of the surroundings are unfamiliar. And she did what the only thing she knew how to do, which is control, 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 control. Well, I think that's true for a lot of parents too, man. I mean, you look around and you see how many kids are trying, guys or girls or whatever, are trying in general to have a crack at something and their parents out of their own fear and their own inability to actually comprehend the situation start to limit the children or people of a younger generation. That's why so many people these days are so fucking scared and anxious, right? Yeah. And I think the thing that kind of pulled me out of that is I'm not even sure how I ran into this idea, but I asked myself the question, does my stepmother and my father have the kind of life I want to live when I'm 30? And if the answer is no, then I will respect what you say. You're paying my bills at the moment. Yes, but you have no idea what I'm capable of. And I'm going to take everything you say with a grain of salt. Did you have another mentor or someone else external other than your father and your stepmother at that point in time who could have helped you or mentored you around that sort of stuff? Because that's a cool line of thinking, but also would have been very foreign to what you would have known. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So as woo-woo as it sounds, it was almost like another voice within me in that like, I think at that point in my life, I had gone through, I had waded through enough shit to where like there was part of me that was in the moment and trying to process everything. And then there was this part of me that was kind of dissociated, taking an objective view at everything and kind of filtering what was important and what I wanted to implement moving forward. Hmm. Totally. And so then, so that, that voice, what did that then tell you to do? So from that point on, it was essentially like, do what the people around you who are older are saying, like in terms of fulfilling their needs, but don't let it completely dictate where you're taking your life. And like a, a, a perfect example of that was like, how, how would I articulate it? Essentially, like my stepmom at the time wanted me to get into more of the arts. And you can't really tell on camera, but I'm about six five two twenty five. <laughs> like I, I was, I'm a, I was a little smaller back then, of course, because I was like 12, 13, 14. But like I had the genetics to get after it in some fashion on the field. So that's what I did. And if I would have gone into the arts, like it's, it was kind of a meaningless thing for me. I developed appreciation for that when I was like 18, 19, 20, but in the moment, it wouldn't have been anything that actually fulfilled me. And I would have been excited about waking up to do. Totally. And so then you say you're 6'5", 220 or 100 kilos for us, you know, guys in Australia who use real measurements. Um, <laughs> so what did, what did you do? Like, did you start playing sport or like what happened there? Yeah. So I got involved with American football when I was around seven. And I was pretty serious, right? Because I had like some decent size on me. I have like Viking genetics. I can put on muscle pretty, pretty well. And I started hitting the gym like really, really hard. I was doing two a days when I was like 12 years old. And then I was essentially shooting for a division one scholarship of some mm. kind. Yeah. And uh, from there, I was doing like three or four sports year round. So I would do football while strength and conditioning, wrestling while strength and conditioning, track and field while doing strength and conditioning. Um, so I was, I was getting after it. And I was following that kind of pattern up until like my freshman year. For some odd reason, there was like gymnastics in wrestling. And I remember doing a front flip and snapping my tibia, which threw a massive wrench in the chain. And that kind of pattern continued pretty much every year, whatever sport I was in. The next year, you would always get injured. Oh yeah, like I, I shattered my hand the next year. The year following my uh, junior year, I was playing fullback, and uh, I got crowned on the top of my head. There's this little soft spot in the helmets that people in like the NFL wear, and I got hit right there. It broke my neck, got my first traumatic brain injury, and then same thing next year. And like four of these major injuries, like stacked year over year over year. I was addicted to opiates. I didn't even understand what that was, but essentially standardized heroin. They were giving me copious amounts and I didn't know any better to tell them no. Yeah, so well, I just sent them kid. a prescription, fill it up. Yeah, you're a kid. I mean, it's not meant to be a job at that time, right? And so what? They literally, they just prescribed you that many. They're just like, oh, here you go. Just go have some more. Yeah, pretty much. Like for the leg, it was like four bottles of Perk 30s. And it was like, <laughs> it was disgusting. For the brain injuries on the second one, they actually put fentanyl in my arm. No shit. 
Yeah. That stuff's pretty hardcore. Yeah. I can't really remember much from high school, but the one thing I do remember is like once they put that IV drip in, it felt like I was flying. Just yeah, right. so out of it. And the weird thing about opiates is like, I think a lot of people don't really understand the mechanism behind them. It's just a flood of dopamine. So it's not necessarily that the pain is gone, but the part of your brain that would care is doped up. <laughs> and you'd probably understand that mechanism better than I could, but to a large degree, my grades, my performance in school just totally dropped because like one of the byproducts of massive doses of opiates is like, you can't feel positive emotion because your brain's just like trying to catch up on the slack that all that dopamine dump produced. So if you had like a value structure around getting good grades to get a division one scholarship or something like that, it bottomed out because everything that would tell you, Hey, you're on the right track for a, from a neurochemical perspective just was not there. So you just didn't give a fuck. Just whatever. The only thing that mattered was really like the feeling from the drug and then anything else is secondary. Pretty much. And like, I didn't go out and try and get dealers or anything like that. I just had this weird rage that I think was not only a byproduct of the brain injuries, but also my upbringing. And then of course, throw opiate withdrawals in there. I was a mess. So I got super into powerlifting. And then with powerlifting, I put up some decent numbers, but absolutely destroyed my body. Like herniated I feel you on that one, bro. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. I would rather break my neck again than herniate another disc. Like, oh, no, not for me. Took three discs out of my spine or not took them out, but herniated them to where I went into the doctor and he was like, yeah, you're going to have to take about five years off of sport, powerlifting, anything that would require more effort than walking, you're done for about five years. That was about three years ago. That's a rough thing to hear when you're young. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, 18. 18. That's a very tough thing to be told when you're 18. So then when you, when you got those discs, right, and you pop them out, did they give you more opiates or like what happened there? At that point, I had kind of caught on to the pattern and I was like, no, I'm not going to take those. I'm not going to get any surgery. It was really convenient because my herniated discs and my concussions were diagnosed at kind of the same time on my senior year. So I just spent hours upon hours upon hours trying to research and find something to put my back together again. And I think like seven or eight weeks into my concussion rehab, which is, was essentially, hey, go sit in a dark basement and don't do anything. Who told you to do that? <laughs> Regional West Medical Center in Nebraska. It's a little podunk operation that uh, it probably did more harm than good. Yeah, funny but, that. Just go sit in a dark space by yourself for hours. That's like the, probably one of the dumbest things I've heard. Better brain led to depression, pretty much. Like it was, it was not fun. But I was scouring the internet, like trying to figure out how to put my back together. And I found this doctor named uh, Stuart McGill. Hmm. He does a lot of spine research up in University of Waterloo in Canada. Very and smart human. Love that guy. Like using the McGill Big Three, I basically put my back back together, hit bigger maxes than it took to like undo my spine about three to six months later. And like, it's totally recovered my back. And then after I turned 18, 
I'd gotten a scholarship for track to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but sports had kind of bottomed out in terms of like value to me. Mm. Like it seemed like nothing but a game and not a game worth playing, which it got real. I remember one day when I was like sitting at the dinner table, I was still trying to power lift. So I was eating just like six, seven, eight meals a day, not having any idea about like what nutrition was then. And I was like, I'm going to have to continue this for four years at a competitive level with somebody getting paid to train me to be my best and look them in the eyes every day and say, Hey, my performance is something I care about. And I called him the next day and told him, Hey man, I really appreciate your time and you bringing me to the facility, but I'm not going to do this. Why'd you decide on that? I played it out in my head. And I guess the conclusion that I came to around months 12 to 24 was like, man, this is going to be boring. This is going to be soul sucking. Because when you, when you go do these tours, like you see how these guys train. Like if you don't have that kind of affinity and really real love for the art that you are getting paid to go to school for, you're going to be in a bad way. That's why so many athletes, like pro athletes, get fucked up is because they're really, really good at something for a short amount of time and, and, and at a certain level and they're very, very good, but they're not actually passionate about it. And they just go and, and they just go and fuck it up and sink it. I mean, all you got to do is look at Ben Simmons. Do you follow NBA at all? I do not. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's Why kind of not, boring. Man, basketball is amazing. But yeah, but like, there's this Australian dude who's an absolute fucking animal. But the, and the guy's got like a contract that's worth something like two hundred million, right? And he's in the second year of it, and he's pretty much just fucked it up because the dude loves to fuck chicks and party way too much, and just not about basketball. And he's literally going to blow several hundred million dollars unless he gets his head right. Yeah. It's super common. Super common. So then I guess that takes me, let's go in a little different segment Segment here. It's like, you said something really cool. You've got to love the art of what you're doing and you've got to love it because we often get stuck looking into the future. We often get stuck living in the future and, and not focusing on what we're doing right here and now in the present, but we just we, we start looking about what we want to achieve instead of doing and focusing on the things that we want to do to achieve what we want to achieve. Does that make sense at all? Yeah. In a Jordan Peterson quote to kind of bundle that up, do what is meaningful, not what's expedient. Yes. I love that. That's super cool. I'm going to steal that one for sure. And, and so with you, like, when did you start to truly apply that? I would say only about 14 months ago. So I had dropped out of college and I had tried sales before, but it, like, it wasn't really my jam. We were using an approach that was really old school. And I've always known like some part of me is known that the way that I articulate myself, the way I write, the way I speak will be used to benefit other people in some fashion. And sales is kind of like the way that I can impart that influence because you can look at it as manipulation of the highest order, or it can be getting people out of their own way to do something that is in their best benefit. And where I work now, like that's what it is. And can we, can we just get back onto that for just for, for a quick second? Let's talk about sales. I, I love talking about sales because everybody wants to make money, but nobody wants to do sales, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> everybody wants to talk. With, with, there's this association with sales and being like fucking Jordan Belfort, 
right? Yeah. Where you'll go through and you'll take money and you'll squeeze it out. But you've just brought up a different side to sales where it's like helping people get out of their own way. For you, what's the difference between helping somebody get out of their own way and make a decision maybe they don't want to do now, but they will in the future versus the manipulative side of sales that some people like to pursue? I think it comes down to intention. I do like to make money. Don't get me wrong. However, when I get on those calls, the thing that I'm thinking is like, okay, does this person have what it takes to actually achieve the things that they are saying? Are they congruent? Are they in alignment with what that which they hold in the highest regard? Because that's what I want to know. Like the money is going to come. I work way too hard to make anything under eight figures by the time I'm dead. Mm. Like it's a done deal in my mind. Like it's resolved. The thing that is more intriguing to me that drives like the study of sales, the art of persuasion, how to run a sales call the best is like, how do I find the things in somebody's mind that is going to take them there, even when it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their entire life? What do you mean, take them there? So I think a lot of people, like in similar circumstances to me, we have what is known as like performance necessity. And like the best way that I can give an example of that is like when I found the company that I am in now, I had spent about 10 grand in courses that didn't work. I had 87 cents in my bank account and I wasn't eating for three days at a time to try and make something work because I know like there's going to be two bridges that I can choose. One towards success or like the actual goals that I think are valuable and one that my parents took. Settling and then using chemicals to basically pull the slack towards the positive emotion that they should be generating if they were doing something meaningful. To get that dopamine again, right? Yeah. And everybody has that kind of performance necessity if you understand their motivation systems properly. Hmm. What does that mean? That essentially means that their current situation has to be more expensive than whatever it is you're offering. Can you go into that in a little bit more depth? Yeah. So one of my mentors here at uh, Sales Sniper puts it in a really good way, right? Like there's two kinds of motivation. There's like what you're running towards and then like there's what you're running away from. So I'll use myself as an example. When I was about 10 years old, I was kind of a fat kid. And if you picture for a moment, like Midwest of the United States, 98 degrees, little 10-year-old fat kid, towel over the shoulder, flip-flops on, wet trunks, Man boobs, the whole gambit. <laughs> like you when I heard sexy, a little bell, <laughs> <laughs> we'll chop that one out. When I heard like a little bell on an ice cream truck, like I took off. But if you pay really close attention to how I'm running, like I'm not pushing other kids over and going through broken glass, like just for frozen dairy, right? Yeah, totally. Now, have you ever seen somebody run out of a burning building? They go pretty quick. Yeah, they don't just stop at the doorframe. So in order to get somebody to the point to where performance is a necessity, you need to understand both of those things. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that everybody at every level, whether it's a salesperson making $1,500 a month or somebody in investment banking who already, who's already worth like 50 million, they both have those things if you understand how to find it. And how do you find it? So part of it is having the right skills, like understanding the outcomes of the conversation you're having. And then part of it is like, you have to be able to do that to yourself. Because if you don't know what's meaningful to you, 
and what is driving performance necessity for you, how are you possibly going to be able to articulate the importance of understanding those things to somebody else? So what is meaning? So you said something really fucking awesome before, and I love this. Like you're like, by the time you die, you're going to be making 10 figures, right? So what's meaningful for you about making 10 figures? That's that's over 10 million bucks. Like that's a lot of cashola, right? You can you can buy a lot of shit with that. So yeah, what is it that's meaning for you about meaningful for you about making $10 million plus? So with the money aspect of it, first and foremost, I need to create a pathway for my siblings. Like I was afforded a really really good luxury of being the oldest sibling in a domestic hell. So I'm going to be the hardest worker, mm. period. I'm going to be the most mature psychologically, period. That's so a really cool way of looking at that. Yeah. Like my siblings, bless their heart. When I was my brother's age, I was five years older than he was up here. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm glad because like he, he has some of that inner child still intact and he's developing at a pace that is most likely more healthy than I did. And my sister, she's even younger. She's about 10, 11 years old. Like she didn't have to advance the way that me and my brother did because it was so visceral. Like she's still in similar environments, but nobody pulled a knife on her. (laughs) So first and foremost, giving them the pathways to do what is actually meaningful to them and getting them those skills, whether it's the investments that I made for entrepreneurship that could be, you know, 50, 100, 200 thousand dollars to get there or higher education all the way up to like a PhD if they want. And then by the time I'm in my mid twenties, I want to be developing some sort of tertiary skill sets around like public speaking, psychology, philosophy to where money is no longer an issue. I can start writing, working on public speaking. So I'm able to basically articulate the message a little better and be able to pull people out of dark places. And then I'm not 100% sure on what the next horizon is, but using that money to inject it into communities and basically help people who have been disenfranchised by circumstance the same way I have. Whether they're black, white, men, women, whatever it might be, man, when your parents are junkies, it's a dark fucking place. Why is that important for you? So I remember a lot of the time when I was in my childhood, adolescence, sometimes now, where you just feel like you're alone. doesn't matter what kind of mental health professionals are around you. doesn't matter what kind of social circles you have. You feel like you're an alien. Like nobody can understand the brimstone that you're walking on right now. And if it were not for my brother, my sister, the people that I know I'm going to have to prepare for working through the same suffering that I had to, man, I would have been sucking on a gun, mm. period. And I know there are people out there who are not talking about this, who feel the same way. And probably the worst thing about that is I'm not going to get my message out there to say of all of them. Yeah, I feel you on that one, man. And it's tough because it doesn't seem like it's getting any better at all. Mm. We all know this shit's going on, right? I mean, I'll put it this way. Here in Australia, right, we've got two states that are locked down. And in those states, like we don't have many COVID deaths, but we have a fuckload of suicide deaths. <laughs> we have a lot of suicides. From you, you've got a very unique perspective, and I'd be really interested in your opinion. We all know that lots of people kill themselves. We know lots of people suck on guns, as you said it. We know lots of people are in those dark stages, and they may not necessarily have stuff to keep them alive, like you have with your brother and sister. 
we all know this is happening. Why do you feel that so few people are actually doing anything about it? So if I had to put my finger on it, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but it's better to address the symptoms than it is to address the underlying problem. Can you go deeper on that? Go full conspiracy theorist if you want, bro. I'm asking for your perspective and your opinion. No, we don't have yeah. to call it fact or what. I just want to know what's going on in Ace's head. So I think it was like me using opiates that really kind of shed the light on, hey, maybe the people in charge don't have 100% of my best interest in mind. Because like the process that I went through to become a competent adult, like that would put me in like some cog in a wheel to where you're comfortable enough not to leave, but you don't make enough money to thrive. Mm. And I saw that when I was like really young. So my dad worked his ass off, very conscientious person, like 14, 16, 18 hours a day, pipe fitting and welding. My mom, she was in sales when she was working like real estate. She was a public notary. Like these are still at some point in their life, well-established people. But the fact that they couldn't get that inch and get beyond into like the thing that they thought was really meaningful. I think that is exactly what led them into drug use. Because if you look at anything that influences the dopaminergic system, like cocaine, opiates, meth, meth is a little more norepinephrine and that sort of thing, but all of them are producing the chemicals that your brain uses to signal, Hey, this is meaningful. Keep doing more of this stuff. And you can generate that organically. But I think it'd be better for society as a whole if people use drugs to create that and stayed in the status quo instead of carving their own path and understanding how to generate those organically. So sorry, you said it'd be better if instead of using the drugs to stay in that path, we'd be better off creating it organically through success and through creation and whatnot. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. is, that, is that right? Yeah. I think it would be better for society as a whole. If like people did that sort of thing and still use drugs instead of like making those organically. Oh, instead of making it organically. Yeah. Why is that? What's the reason to move up a corporate hierarchy for 10 to 15 years? So you can get a XYZ salary of like 400 grand a year when you can do the same thing and get more meaning out of like doing sales for two to three years, dealing with a really low floor. And then a super high ceiling, like once you have the skills. Hmm. So, sorry, I'm not sure if I'm understanding you totally correctly here, but so what I'm hearing is that what's the point in going through and climbing the corporate hierarchy and going up through all that sort of bullshit and trying to create that meaning and get that dopamine that way? Whereas instead, we'd be better off working and doing something, as you said, like sales or, or something perhaps we're more passionate about, but having a drug there as well to boost the dopamine. Am I understanding you correctly? Ooh, no. I meant more along the lines of like, man, what's the best way to put it? The jobs that society needs, mm. like electricians, even some in corporate America, pipe fitters, welders, stuff that you go through a little bit of training and the pay is relatively low. And they're using drugs to create that meaning because nothing is actually meaningful to them. Yeah. Hypothetically. Yeah. Or they could choose something in entrepreneurship in an area that I, they actually enjoy and then create those chemicals organically, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And so which way do you feel more people should go, in your opinion? I think more people should go to the right. And I think people go to the left just based off circumstances and basically 
and narratives that they've been fed their entire life as to what the what they should do. Well, it's it's very like okay. So you and I have done that. We've gone to the right. We've gone down the path of entrepreneurship and fulfillment and whatnot. But dude, like I was a bee's dick away from becoming a doctor, right? Like I was that close from going down that path. <laughs> Bro, can you imagine me sitting in a fucking office? all day, every day, listening to people complaining about their colds and giving them like codril and flu tablets. They're like, fuck that. Like, I'm nope. so glad that I didn't go to uni for five years and incur a hundred plus thousand dollars of debt. But like, I was that close. And the only thing that saved me, funnily enough, was a really shit. I had a string, like dealt with a string of really shit doctors, like terrible. Like these guys were so bad that I went from like loving everything about being a doctor and wanting to do it to like, Fuck this. If I end up like you, I'm going to kill myself within a couple of years. So there's no way of doing that, you miserable pricks. Right? Yeah. That's, how, that's how I was. But so it's all well and good for us. We've had these lessons. We've seen what happens when you go down to that path of living a job which isn't fulfilling. And then I've used drugs, fucking shit those of them to try and get that dopamine up and to feel good about what I was doing. But it's all well and good for us to, do, to, to, to look back and say that now. But if we're, if someone were in that stage, if you were in that stage right now where you're grinding out into a job that you don't find fulfilling, you don't enjoy, how do you change it? Because you might have a mortgage, you might have responsibilities, kids. How do you get out of that pathway, which is leading you down to a life of fulfillment? And how do you shift that across into something which is a fulfillment and happiness and real organic dopamine? So first and foremost, I think you need to establish the target. You need to understand what that thing is for you. and. To which you might say, how do I do that? I would say Socratic questioning. So you really have to consult yourself here and ask in earnest what the honest answer is, because you might not like to hear it. Like if Why you would have that? asked me at if I if you would have told me at 15 that I would be running Zoom calls and selling, like I would have been like, ah, you're that's a good one. Fuck off. But like the things that really make people tick. Sometimes they're either embarrassed or actually scared to pursue because they don't think that it can help with the amount of responsibilities that they have, if that makes sense. Kind of. Can you go into a little bit more depth on that? I, th I think I'm almost with you. So I'm sorry. What was the original question? It's getting kind of late <laughs> in the States. <laughs> That's cool, bro. How do it? Okay. So a lot of us, we get stuck in this trap of working in a job, which we find unfulfilling in a direction, which is unfulfilling. i give you an example. Actually, we had one of our clients fucking legend. Uh, his name's, name's Rob. And I love the shit out of this dude. It's really, really awesome. And Josh has just been working with him recently on figuring out what he actually wants. He's got a house. He's got a dog. He had a missus, had being the key word there and was looking at like kids and all that sort of stuff. And he ended up pretty much just like blowing up a lot of it and saying, fuck it. Like, this isn't really what I want to do. Like, you know, he ended up leaving his missus and he's going to split the house. And you know what happens when you split up with a significant other, everything gets turned in half and everyone ends up with nothing. And the lawyers make a lot of money, right? That's yeah. the, generally the way that it goes. And so for him, he decided to shirk it, but only after having worked with us. And now funnily enough, he's like happier than ever. But how do you guide, how do you get down the thought process and how do you become okay with making this decision to leave a job or leave a lifestyle which you find unfulfilling that you've only been pushed into because of societal pressures. And you were mentioning that then about finding out what you want, which is very similar to the summit, like having that honest conversation, like what the fuck do you want to do? What is your summit? What is my goal? Yeah. And starting with that. So when you map out that summit in, in JCF terms, 
Like you need to question the summit on your own volition. Okay. Why, why is that meaningful? And then if nothing but the rational part of your brain clicks in, like if it's all logical, you have not found the right thing because when you do find the right thing, it's very hard to describe, but it's kind of like a bolt of lightning in your nervous system. You're like, that's it. That's going to wake me up in the morning and help me be excited. So what was first the first thing that, for you? The first thing? The first bolt of lightning. The first jolt of lightning. You're like, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. What was that for you? So that came around uh, 12 to 18 months ago where I, I was reading Socrates. And I, I kind of under... I got to the bottom of his thought process to where he was taking these platitudes of Athenians and trying to get to the very bottom to understand like their identity and how they were looking at the world. And I did that to myself. And I started with like some very surface level stuff. Well, I guess I want to make a lot of money. Why? So I'm a productive member of society. Why? Why do you want to be a productive member of society? Well, because that's probably the best thing to do. Oh, that's not it. And then I kept doing that with my own ideas over and over and over again until I basically hit this one thought that was like, I'm going to represent what happens when you are absolutely unreasonable on what you're willing to do the kind of, to get the kind of outcomes you want out of life. What do you mean by unreasonable? By unreasonable, no matter what circumstances you're in, you can basically set the proper principles, the proper behaviors, the proper mindset, the proper work ethic against that, and you will win in the end. Hmm. I love that, man. So you're going through and you're asking why until you get to your own bullshit answer, which is generally the first thing that comes out is something which is logical and is meaningless. And then you go all the way down until you find something which is emotional and is something which is core to your values. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And with value assessments and that sort of thing, I think that's great. But I think a lot of people start assigning platitudes to what they think is meaningful. It's kind of woo-woo. It's kind of spiritual. But there is some higher faculty within you that is going to deliver that answer to where you know. And the only way you know, I guess the only way I can describe it is you will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, have certainty that you have found the right thing. And if there's a shadow of a doubt, you have not found the right thing. It just starts to make sense all of a sudden. And it's like, there's no other way you can put it. It just makes sense and it just fits and it just is. And it's like, there's no point in questioning it because it is, right? Mm-hmm. So then, okay. So what made you want to decide to, to work with us and to get coaching from us and from Christian? So I needed to understand basically the mechanisms that is going to not only help me perform at a higher level, but start working through some of the things that happened before in my life. I'm not sure if you've ever read the book, like the body keeps the score or anything like that, but like, I get it now. The body keeps the score in short, like everything that's ever happened to you, you can think through it. You can write about it. You can do all of that, but you're not going to understand what a good nervous system feels like. If all you've ever known is, oh shit, I might die in a second or two. Uh, (laughs) Like that was basically the state I was living in for 20 years. And I would go into this perpetual cycle of like, okay, I would work really hard, have this massive like peak of output. And then I would just hit this wall to where it's like nothing but negative emotion. Everything that told me 
you're on the right track from a neurochemical perspective just wasn't there. Like I remember trying to call leads for like five minutes at a time, set a timer on my phone and then get up and go walk around because I was that exhausted. Like Mm. it was, it was trying to lift 600 pounds off of the ground from a dead stop to call like five leads. It was just absolute burnout. And I didn't understand what led to that. And I needed to basically have some sort of professional in my life that could get the best out of me so I could expect the best out of other people. And then, okay. So then you started working with us in order to get you performing at your peak. It's like, did you have any, like, cause you're a high level dude, right? And you already know a lot. Did you have any times where you questioned like, why am I doing this? Is it, was there any hesitation, doubt, anything like that? I think there was at first. Because like the first two or three months while I was powerlifting, I was basically reading scientific literature around lifting nutrition, but I didn't get to the root of it the way you guys do. So part of my ego was like, man, I don't need this. But the way that you guys match people up with the coaches basically lowered all of that resistance. What do you mean by that? The way that Christian communicates to me more on like a metaphysical belief structure kind of way, like it just... After a while, I was like, okay, I got to start listening. He has such a good way of describing what is going on within in analogies that I couldn't ignore it anymore. What was it about him talking to you in that way? Sorry, go on. So to to be perfectly candid, for the first six to eight weeks, like I was paying the bill, but I wasn't taking the steps. I was getting on the meetings. (laughs) I it was a mortal sin of ego. I was like, man, all right. Let's see what this Christian guy is all about. And then layer by layer, call by call, he finally got down to the root of it. It was like, man, you've been through some shit. It starts here. I've had these conversations before with people in really dark places. You got to get your nervous system right. You got to sleep better. You got to make sure your meals are squared away. You got to train on a consistent basis. And I started doing those things. And I remember after like two, three days of consistency, it's like, literally a ton of weight off of my shoulders. So I'd never had that kind of baseline to where you just feel normal to where you don't wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares that are memories, like night terrors gone. Just the awful remnants of the past were slowly but surely melting because of Christian and like what you guys have done for for me and basically everything entailed in the program. Dude, a lot of people have that ego issue and most guys very rarely ever get the fuck out of their own way, right? It like takes a lot of work. Like what did you do or why were you able to put your ego aside and to start to learn from from Christian who's a pretty switched on guy? So I think what it was for me was essentially like, again, Socratic questioning. Like, hey, when was the last time you actually read a report on anything about the nervous system? Oh, about four years. Oh, do you think James read anything like after that? Yeah, probably. Like I did little thought loops like that up until it was kind of gone. And then there was a sense of like existential dread that kind of couples with burnout to where, you know, you're doing something right. You're on the right path, but the way you're carrying yourself and just the state of play with ACE, it was just so terrible that I was like, man, I should at least hear these people out. I had kind of like a necessity of negative emotion 
drive me into actually using the program to its full extent. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so when you actually started doing the program, listening to Christian and whatnot, and you stopped having the night terrors, you started sleeping, started eating properly, all that sort of stuff. What effect did that have on you? Basically every dimension of my life improved. Like I could read faster. I basically doubled my sales in the course of like six weeks. I started having like really hard conversations that were long time coming that were stressful in the moment, but I believed in myself more. So I had them. Like I didn't care so much about the negative emotion consequences because now I had the skills to deal with that. Hmm. So it improved every dimension of my life tenfold. It's cool how like when you start getting an improvement in your sleep and your eating and whatnot, you then go through and you get these second order wins in your sales, your confidence, able to have those conversations. And then out of those wins, they create more wins because you've got more money, you've got more time, you've got less stress. And it becomes into this positive feedback loop. Was there anything though, like along your journey, like you've had a lot of shit go on, you know, you're famous for being one of the hardest workers going around and the bloke who makes more dials than anybody else, right? Like you may, used to make an ungodly amount of dials. It was like mythical how many A's could get through in a day. <laughs> Were there any shit points though? Like, did you have any tough times along the way where instead of going up, you actually took a, took a hit and tumbled down? Yeah. So it was this year actually to where basically everything that I described in 2010 happened again. Like I moved to Colorado. I got enough money together from my company and my work to, to actually move out of my dad's house. And when I was living there, like he was still on cocaine. So <laughs> it was it was not the best place to be. Mm. And I moved over to a, a little apartment with me and my brother to kind of, you know, get our stuff together. And JCF was kind of plugging away at this point. I was following the program well, like waking up in better states, better sleep scores, all the whole night. And then I think it was Easter Sunday. So about a week after I got here, my mom comes to my apartment high on meth. And then she's trying to get me a gift or something out of her purse. And she pulls out crystal. She pulls out like a bottle full of Percocet laced with fentanyl and then Percocet. So I flush all the drugs. I'm like, okay, she'll get sober. It'll be all right. Hoping to God that that would be the end of that little string of terror. But meth does not work like that. She kept getting high over and over again. She basically emptied her bank accounts to where she had to be codependent on me. And it, it came to a head at, uh, it was like a Tuesday night in May where, um, she called me over to her house and she was like, so beyond high that she doesn't even remember this, but she pulled a knife on me again and tried to push me down a staircase. And I had her sedated by a fire department and then basically put on a baker's hold. And what a baker's hold is, is like, because of somebody's mental health, they are legally obligated to stay in a padded room for 72 hours. Somehow she broke out. <laughs> Don't ask me how, but... Um, That's a hell of a drug, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she got out somehow. And then about two weeks after that, she was basically incapable of, of doing anything for herself. So I called the rehab clinic that she went to in 2010, got her an appointment there, got the insurance sent over. Oh, we can't take her. And then for the next seven days, I was calling everybody in their referral network to get her set up with treatment. And then I found a place, shipped her off, and um, I adopted my sister for about three months. 
to where a 21-year-old dude was raising a 10-year-old <laughs> and um, basically got her through the semester and then made the decision to put her in a foster family. And the thing about trauma, especially when it's in a very condensed period, you don't really feel anything when it just knocks you on your ass like that. And it's just over and over and over and over again, year after year, sometimes week after week. Like I didn't feel anything. And I, I remember going to Christian and I was like, man, I, I think I'm a sociopath. Like no emotion in either direction. There is work, sleep, eating, and workouts. And like, I just didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And then out of nowhere, like all of the negative emotion hit me at once. And I kind of needed that catharsis to kind of get it out of my system. But for like six weeks after that happened, negative emotion was higher than it had been in like 24 months, even before I had JCF. And through that little stint, if anybody's watching this and they're, I guess, in a similar space, like the only way to get through is you have to collapse your timeframes. Like, okay, if this month seems like too far of a time horizon to deal with it, think about the next week. If that is too much, think about the next day. If that is too much to handle, the next hour. Even if that is too overwhelming, the next minute. And you play that game with yourself until it's over. And then how do you know that it's over? I guess the way that I knew it was over is the first time that I got out of bed and I wasn't shaking. That was just something that my nervous system did when it was under that kind of load. It was just like quaking. I, I think it's called panic attack, something like that. I'm not sure. But essentially, like it felt like I was seizing in the morning. So that quits. But the way that I guess I kind of knew is I started looking forward to things again. Like this shaking super interesting, man, isn't it? Like it's a really surreal feel, feeling. They actually studied it. And they've shown that that shaking occurs and it's a way of us processing and dealing with trauma. It's a way of getting it out. Have you ever seen a kid when they're really frightened? Fuck, you've been a kid and you've been frightened. They just shake and they get it out. <laughs> yeah. Right? Most adults don't get it because we try and hide it. And that's when we build up and we store the trauma and we store all that bullshit. But the actual shaking is us getting it out. Have you ever seen a chicken? i got chickens, so I was related to chickens, right? I love my chickens. They're the best, right? They're little silkies. I don't know if you've ever seen chickens before, but they're fucking useless for everything that most chickens do, but they're so cute, bro. They've got like fluffy little <laughs> feathers and a little fluffy head and I got them because they're super cute and I love them. But you see them when they get traumatized by something, they'll just go flap it off like straight away and they'll flap for 30 seconds, a minute or however long they need and they go back to normal. And it's like we humans, we refuse to deal with that stress and refuse to get it out and we try and hold on to it. But the shaking and the actual tremoring and the trembling is actually one of the ways that we heal, which is super, super fucking cool. But so back to you, man, and I, I'm aware it's getting late over there and I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but you you had to put your sister in in foster care. You said, yeah. Um, how was that for you to make that decision? So it was a major conflict. One as kind of like the father archetype for my siblings, and two as also the person with my own best interest in mind. Because like sometimes those are two opposing camps. So like these two little sub personalities within me are having this fight. But I kind of looked over the past twenty one years looked at like what's happened and like what a person who is at that age actually needs. And I came to the decision that like, Hey, I cannot provide that right now. 
like I'm working, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. So what, what does that mean for her during the daylight? I can't play. Like we can't go on hikes. We can't go on walks. We can't do any of that stuff aside from weekends. And I have a two bedroom apartment. So she was sleeping on like a military cot up until she finished her semester with her friends. So like, would it be the best thing to teach her some of the lessons that I learned? Yes. But will it be the best thing for her mental, emotional, and psychological development long-term? No, it will not. So it was a really tough decision. And I felt a lot of guilt afterward, especially since (laughs) I told my mom and the way I negotiated her going to rehab was like, Hey, I will take care of her. Don't worry. She was in my ear for like another six weeks after that, but I think it's the best thing for her. And I don't want to be kind of an overbearing sibling the same way a parent would. So Mm. it was difficult, but in the long term, I think it'll have its dividends. Well, it's a, it sounds like it's a tough decision, but one that you had to make. That's pretty fucking awesome, man. Like that takes a big set of steel balls to be able to pull off a decision like that, huh? I mean, that's that's one way of looking at it. I'm I'm just a guy being a dude. Just <laughs> gotta roll with the punches, you know. Man, that's what we love about you, man. Dude, this has been super cool and I really appreciate you sharing your story. If someone on here is listening and they resonate with it, what's the best way that they could, if you're open to it? To, to find out more about you or what you do or, or anything like that or get in contact with you? Add me on Facebook. My first name, Ace, last name, Blue, card in a color. Kind of hard to misspell. And then my Instagram handle is Ace underscore Blue. Dope, man. Dude, I, I really appreciate you coming on with your total honesty because I think there's a lot in here that I've taken away and I think a lot of other people will too. So yeah, thank you a lot, man. I really appreciate it. 100%, brother. Been a pleasure. I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to seeing you make 10 million a year. That's going to be fun. <laughs> it will be. It will be. <laughs> Fuck yeah. All right, man. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you. 100%, James. Same to you. Cheers, dude. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed the video. If you got something out of it and you want to learn more, click the link below or type in High Performance Conversations with James Can, and you'll be able to check out all the podcasts that we've done. We cover a stack of different topics, everything from getting your mojo back, overcoming anxiety, self-doubt, self-esteem, and learning from some of the industries and some of the world's top performers in both business and in health. Look forward to having you on there.